This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So the weekly death toll from COVID-19 in the U.S. rose for the first time since February and infections climbed for a fourth straight week, even as vaccinations are surging. We talked a little bit about uh, what's going on in New York City for some of our audience. Uh, There's a lot going on here, whether you're here in the U.S. or, of course, in other parts of the world. England, by the way, reopening shops, pub gardens, gyms and hair salons after months of a lockdown. So let's get into it with our daily check on COVID and the vaccine rollout. Welcome back, Dr. Rachel Dew. She's co-founder of Modi Health. She's with us once again on the phone in Los Angeles. Dr. Dew, nice to have you back with us on Bloomberg. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me back, Carol. So tell me about the view that you're seeing in terms of patients coming into your office, what you're seeing when it comes to COVID-19 cases, what you're seeing in terms of the vaccine rollout. Yeah, absolutely. So on the Modi Health platform, our practitioners have definitely been seeing an increase in people experiencing pandemic burnout and the need for emotional well-being and support from our integrative life coaches as well as our mental health professionals. But we're also seeing a real uptick in people becoming more comfortable with getting vaccinated and really excited to move beyond the pandemic. One thing I will say is that, you know, that that pandemic exhaustion and burnout is really causing some people to stop wearing masks, stop, you know, focusing on social distancing. And I think it's really important that we still stay the course and continue those safety precautions. You know, it's interesting that you say that. Last week, we had a COVID scare in my family. It turned out to be a false positive. And after all this testing, and I was sequestered last week, my daughter, my family, but it reminded us, like, we were terrified that we'd gotten it, even though we were so careful. And it reminded us that, you know, this is real. It's still out there. Uh, and the thought of having it really put some pressure and stress on my family. And it was great to know that we don't have it. But it's just a reminder that this is kind of the world we're living in. Yes, there's progress with the vaccine rollout, but it's still out there. We're not over it. Absolutely. So tell us in terms of, you said, uh, more pandemic burnout, uptake in up, you said people getting more vaccines, but I'm curious about the burnout, uh, because that is something, a topic that we've talked about a lot over the past year. What's changed? What's different? Uh, What are the numbers like in terms of the uptick? Yeah, absolutely. I think that what we're seeing is just a large amount of people being completely exhausted, right? Everybody's ready to move forward. And people, you know, they've undergone such stress for such a long period of time, right? They've been experiencing stress, loss, and transition, really feeling that burnout is, it's a normal response. It's a normal response for all of us. And getting support around emotionally processing what it has been for each person is important. And, you know, there's also a few simple steps that everyone can be taking on their own to really reduce this this burnout. And that's, you know... Things like giving yourself permission to get more rest and the space to process the transition, treating yourself gently and increasing self-care in ways that feel helpful, practicing mindfulness, getting outdoors and moving your body, again, continuing that safe social distancing activities with friends and loved ones so you can still feel connected, 
And then, of course, getting that support from a mental health practitioner or an integrative life coach. You know, it's interesting, too, over the last week or so, we've talked about a couple of companies, uh, Royal Bank of Canada and Toronto Dominion Bank, giving employees an extra paid day off this year. And it's specifically um, to avoid burnout. What's changed, do you think, in the corporate culture that there's a heightened sensitivity when it comes to burnout? Absolutely. I think that pre-pandemic, you know, at at Modi Health, we do a lot in the corporate wellness space. And so pre-pandemic, we were seeing a lot of companies were wanting to increase productivity and address wellness and well-being so that there could be a higher level of productivity. But during the pandemic, corporations, companies, organizations, institutions have been actually seeing overperformance and burnout happening from people working from home and really overworking and not having much work-life balance. And so they're seeing a decrease. But is that new? I can. I know that there's going to be people saying, this is nothing new. We've always yeah. talked. Certainly those of us who work in the New York metro are always talking about our, 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 life, uh, our work-life balance and how bad it is. What's different? I, well, I think the pandemic has really shed a light on the importance of work-life balance. And I think that's been one of the positives to come out of the pandemic is a, a real reevaluation of what wellness and well-being and health looks like mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, really that whole person, whole life approach. Well, and what would you be your advice to someone who's listening, who's thinking about this, and maybe they haven't reached out to somebody? Uh, How do they know if they've really got kind of a burnout problem? And just got about 40 seconds, then we'll come back and talk some more. Yeah, absolutely. If you're feeling exhausted, if you're, you know, seeing a decrease in quality of sleep and a decrease in your emotional well-being, you're probably experiencing some burnout or some fatigue from the pandemic. And really addressing it now is incredibly important to get the help you need. Dr. Du, one thing I did want to ask you, and when I kicked off our conversation in the previous segment, I said the weekly death toll from COVID-19 in the U.S. rose for the first time since February, and infections climbed for a fourth straight week, even as we see vaccinations surge. When you see a summary and headline like that, what do you think about where we are when it comes to COVID-19 and getting to the other side of it? I think back to that pandemic burnout and people feeling like they are done following precautions, they're done dealing with it, they're done hearing about it. But again, you know, even as we're rolling out these vaccines, they're not 100% effective and we're all not vaccinated to the level that we need to be. And so it's important to continue following those safety protocols, no matter how exhausted we are with it. You said the vaccine's not 100% effective which is just a reminder that even if they're 96, 97%, there is that slim chance, right, that you can get it or there's still some concerns. Absolutely. And so getting vaccinated, I believe, is a really important part of the recovery process and getting past the pandemic, you know, really watching out not only for our own health, but also the health and wellness of our neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members. So what about when you hear about variants and double variants. I mean, it was very much a big part of our discussions last week. And I know there's this kind of race to get the vaccine to as many people before we start to see too many variants and possibly one that could be a lot more contagious and a lot uh, contagious and a lot more serious. How do you approach that? How do you think about that? 
I think about that in the sense that we do need to really be steadfast. We really need to move forward. And as many people as possible getting vaccinated as soon as possible is going to be key in being able to be prepared for any additional variants. What are the kind of cases that you guys are seeing um, either on your platform or coming, you know, what what are you hearing in terms of the type of COVID uh, cases that are coming out? Because we've been hearing that it's getting to a younger uh, population, younger demographic, but I'm curious about what you're seeing. Absolutely. Definitely seeing that. And we sort of see two major categories. We see people who are experiencing what we call mild cases, and then we're seeing much more extreme cases. Obviously, we refer those out. Some people need to be hospitalized or have specialists who are treating them. But, you know, really on the Modi Health platform, what we are really trying to do is um, a combined traditional medical and natural approach to treat and also optimize health and well-being post-COVID as well. What might be kind of the protocols then, that combination that if someone comes to your platform and uh, whether it's stress and they're dealing with things, how do you combine kind of the traditional with kind of a more innovative uh, form of healthcare? Absolutely. Such a great question. On our platform, people are able to build their entire care team. So it's really a whole person care team approach. So they're able to see both a naturopathic doctor or functional medicine doctor, as well as a traditional primary care physician or specialist in traditional medicine. And then also different types of health coaches or wellness coaches, nutrition, mental health, because it's so important to take a look at that whole picture and support the whole person. Just got about 40, 50 seconds left here. You know, I have conversations with friends, family, and we say some who are able to spend more time on their wellness side, whether it's exercising at home or what have you, but they're concerned about when everything gets up and running again, how do you continue to do that? What's one quick piece of advice? And and forgive me, just got about 30 seconds left here. Yeah, absolutely. I think that balance is something that's unique to each and every individual. So figuring out ways that work in your life to address mental health, emotional well-being, physical health, and, you know, really taking care of the whole person. And that, again, is going to look very different for different people, different budgets, different time availability. Mm. And that's what we really aim to address on the Modi Health platform. No matter where you are in your journey, what your needs are, we can help. All right. Well, good to check in with you again. Stay safe and be well. Dr. Rachel Dew, co-founder, CEO of Modi Health, with us on the phone from Los Angeles. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Certainly one of the big stories of the day is the chip meeting at the White House today. We've all already heard from the president, President Biden, saying the U.S. needs to address chip shortages. Meantime, the Intel CEO said the White House will work with Congress to get funds and specifically uh, are seeing support for chip production, specifically in the United States. Keep in mind, the CEOs of 4GM, Intel, and Google were all uh, at the White House today for that summit. With that in mind, in the current issue of the magazine, Bloomberg's Ian King and Tom Giles dig into Intel's new Hail Mary when it comes to the semiconductor industry and specifically for their company. Tom is Bloomberg Technology Executive Editor, joining us from San Francisco. Also joining us, Bloomberg Business Week Editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. And Joel, if you think about the semiconductor industry, the global semi-industry, you got to include Intel in any discussion. 
Yeah, it's really, um, you know, Intel has just been a, a powerhouse um, in, in this industry for, for decades. So they, they kind of go hand in hand. But, but what Tom and um, Ian really dug into with this story has been sort of the, the slow decline, especially over the last decade, as Intel has gone from sort of this um, um, vaunted um, uh, symbol of American technology and, and manufacturing and, and, and management. And and I actually have watched it sort of slowly fade, uh, and and kind of enter this existential moment, and and that's sort of really where the story came into uh, being. And you know we've had so much attention on on chips in general. Um, we have to kind of talk about the American elephant in that room, which is which is Intel. Um, Tom, twenty billion dollars they've laid out as sort of their path to the future. Um, how much hope do you put in that number? Well, you know, look, Intel has the money, um, and they still throw off a lot of cash from their existing business. Um, so I have no doubt that they're going to throw a lot of money at this problem. Um, the challenge for them is that they have slipped in uh, production of the most advanced ships. And just how quickly can you – you can throw a lot of money at the problem, but how quickly can you get these new um, fabs, these new chip production plants, up and running, um, and how quickly can you fix the technology that they've fallen behind on? You know, making these chips smaller and smaller every cycle becomes harder and harder, and, and harder to do at the scale that Intel needs to do it. Remember, they're the main supplier to the, to the, to the servers and the computers around the world. Um, and the fact of the matter is, other companies have just gotten faster and better than they are at cranking these things out at scale. And that's the, that's the real challenge that they have right now. What's great about this story, um, there's so much, and I can only imagine the individuals you talk to it, because there's so much insight into the different CEOs and the different stumbles that Intel did after just kind of owning, uh, I feel like, the semiconductor industry. You talk specifically, I feel like, about a major blunder, uh, Tom, and that was Apple's mis- the, the misstep it did with Apple mm-hmm. by not linking up mm-hmm. with them. How big of a, how, how much did that set them back yeah so when it comes to mobile chips um that is an area where intel just tried and tried again uh many times to get a toehold in that market one of the early one of the early instances that we talk about in the story is when the former ceo um, a guy by the name of paul odellini was you know this is before the smartphone introduction, right, in the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. This is when uh, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, came to Intel and said, okay, we want to cut a deal with you to make chips for our phones. And Paul and Paul Odellini just, just balked at it. He said he wasn't pleased with the terms of that. That ended up being a really, um, you know, really landmark decision and, and one that has worked against them mainly because what it did is as this business went to other companies, first Samsung, and then later this company in Taiwan called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, when you win the contract to supply Apple, a lot comes with that. You get part, you get, you get into this ecosystem and you gain the ability to really be the point, the point supplier for this incredibly, you know, fast-moving market, which was smartphones. I mean, remember what it was like when, when, you know, 15 years ago when when this was taking off. Everybody was just rushing to get these, and that created a lot of business for the semiconductor industry. 
So, so Tom, you know, they missed that moment, which became sort of the beginning of the the mobile revolution. Um, and you know, as you as you both write in the story, you know, Intel's predicament didn't come about overnight. It's been a consequence of a decade's worth of missteps. One of my most favorite elements of this story, and and what I think we do, um, uh, especially well at the magazine, are these sort of like case studies. And and this one really feels like a management case study. So when you, when you step back, mm-hmm. and you know, having covered this company for years now, what, if you approach it through that case study lens, what are some of the the, the big management take takeaways that you think um, you know readers will find most interesting here? And please talk about Brian mm-hmm. Kay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well. Before we talk about Brian Krasanich, you have to go back to Andy Grove. He was one of the original founders of Intel and one of its longest-lasting CEOs, and he was legendary, um, specifically for he he was very demanding. Um, he you know he was he was very disciplined, um, and he ran Intel. You know he he was seen as a uh, one of the early management gurus. Um, after whom. Many of the biggest tech executives out there right now pattern their management style. Um, the thing that was interesting, he could be very demanding, but he was also he also insisted on listening to people tell him about what was wrong with the company. He called them the Cassandras, right? These are the people who otherwise wouldn't get listened to, and they were the ones who were you know on the front lines of talking to customers, for example. They would come and say, "Hey, this is what's wrong with the company. This is what's wrong with what's happening." Later in Intel's life, uh, a CEO came into, you know, came, rose to the, the top, uh, Brian Krasanich. He hadn't been steeped in as closely in Andy Grove's philosophy of the world, Andy Grove's view of how to manage a company. He had a lot of faith in Intel's capabilities, some of which was well-founded. I mean, Intel was an incredibly capable company. But what started to happen is people came into his orbit who started to tell him, um, we're seeing problems in our ability to keep producing these really advanced chips. Our, 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 basically, our factories are not up to the task. Right. And he was very dismissive of that and failed to listen to the Cassandras. So a takeaway here is find people in an organization who will be honest with you about what the company is doing well and what it's doing poorly. And when they come to you with bad news, don't be dismissive of it. Listen to them and find out, is there reason for this? It is an incredible read-through, and I highly recommend it, and I'll I'll retweet it out on Twitter, but uh, so much interesting and in-depth information about what went on at Intel to kind of get it to where it is today. Um, Guys, thank you so much. Tom Giles, uh, Bloomberg Technology Executive Editor, Joe Weber, Editor of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Master. My co-host Tim Stenovic is out today. Well, one of the things, though, that has definitely been on my radar is just watching all of the uh, back and forth between the U.S. and China and the relationship. The ascent of China specifically, though, not a new concept, and yet the approach taken by China has provided a lot of fodder for discussion. In his latest column, Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown notes that uh, the summer and winter games in Beijing bookend a period of history when it comes to China's approach 
approach to the rest of the world. We love this. We talked about this and his column a lot on our planning call this morning. Andy joins us on the phone in New York City. Um, Andy, so talk to us about this because the idea that Beijing is going to be hosting both games, I mean, there's a lot going on here in terms of what we can feel, you know, kind of Beijing's approaches to the world at large. It's not just about the Olympic Games. It, it, it's not just about the Olympics. <laughs> the Olympics, obviously, are massively political. It's, 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 it's worth noting, though, that, that, you know, Beijing is going to be the first city in the world to host both the Summer Olympics, which it did in 2008, I was there at the time, uh, and the Winter Olympics, uh, which are coming up in in February next year. Um, It's also worth noting that um, they're going to repurpose quite a few of the buildings that these iconic structures that were built for 2008, like the Water Cube, which was this amazing sort of box covered in bubble wrap uh, that was the host of the swimming and the diving competition that's now going to be so the water cube is now going to be the ice cube uh, and the bird's nest which was wrapped up in the sort of all these you know this intricate steel lattice looking like twigs um, that's now going to be you know repurposed as the the venue for the opening and closing ceremonies of, of the winter of, of the winter olympics that's what's going to be the same. The politics and the context between these two events could not be more different. As I said in the column, they bookend this period of history where China goes from being quite deferential um, to the rest of the world, particularly to, to the West and the United States, to being very much uh, defiant. Well, and, um, you know, taking this, you, 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 you know, you, you, <laughs> we, we, we're not going to tolerate a boycott. Well, what's really wild is, you know, just going back to the earlier games, you talk about how they really embraced Western architects. I mean, they really were kind of, you know, a big hug to the world to say, yep, we're doing this, but we love you, the world, at the same time. But this time around, it's got a different feel. It was amazing watching Beijing being reinvented for the 2008 Olympics. They took the axis of the city, which under Mao and, and subsequent leaders had, had, had gone east-west. They built sort of along the, the Avenue of Eternal Peace. They built a lot of the ministries, Ministry of Telecommunications, museums, hotels, and so on. And they literally spun Beijing around so that it sits now on a, on a north-south axis, which accentuates all of these historical venues in Beijing, the Forbidden City, the ancient gateways, some of the palaces. But the guy who did that, the architect who did that, was a German, right? right. Uh, it's it actually, I believe it or not, it was Albert Speer, who was the son of Hitler's fav- favorite architect. He, he, he designed this, this, this massive north, north-south axis. Um, so, and, and this was all intended to sort of divert the world's attention from the sort of China's revolutionary, blood, you know, blood-soaked turmoil, you know, uh, turbulent recent history. It skips over all that and, and focuses the world's attention on China's sort of glorious ancient civilizations and its culture and Buddhism and, and Confucianism and, and, and so on. And the message very much was, you know, we are not a threat. Don't forget, this was mm. a coming out party, right? This mm-hmm. is where China announces itself, the world's next great economic superpower. You don't have anything to, wor- to, to worry about right we're in, we're old ancient civilization so that was really a big part of of the message and the slogan was one world one dream right 
But but it's interesting as you kind of wrap up your column, you finish off saying that, you know, President Xi has let it be known that he doesn't really like these Western inspired buildings anymore, or maybe didn't to begin with. Right. Well, this was the, the way back in 2008, this was the way they sort of defined modernity. It was very much mm. in Western terms, right? Sort of Western architectural idioms. They got Rem Koolhaas and Zaha Hadid. And, you know, you saw all of these amazing futuristic buildings going up in, in Beijing. He hates that. I mean, he, he, he said uh, some years ago, he, he, he thought it was all chi chi guai guai, which is uh, Mandarin means kind of weird, odd, right? Mm. He doesn't like this at all. They don't want the web they, you know this the, the message back then is we're going to join the world as it is the the the, the western dominated u.s led global order and that was very much the message we're going to sort of you know fit right on in forget it the message now is you know it's 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 the world on china's terms right and that's how you're going to come to beijing this time you know forget the de- forget the deference right well what's interesting too um as you know and you and i've talked about it a lot you know concerns about human rights violations concerns about how the uyghur muslims have been treated a lot of companies you know everybody's playing it very delicately in terms of companies or sponsors pulling out and terms of the U.S. saying we're not going to send our team, is that unlikely? You know, we've had a history of this, right? So in 1980, the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Olympics in protest at the, at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 79. And then four years later, you know, the Soviet Union boycotts the L.A. games, right? This is really a dismal history. It doesn't do much. It doesn't change much except to sort of basically shatter the dreams and ambitions of, of athletes who've trained their whole lives for these events and to peak at exactly the right time. So I, I, I don't think, I mean, of course, there are a lot of human rights groups that say mm. we should boycott, you know, they're talking about the genocide Olympics and protests, you yeah. know, we should boycott it over that. Um, you know, there are sort of some more sensible ideas around there. Uh, around right. there. Mitt, Rom- Mitt Romney is saying, you know, let's boycott it diplomatically, let's boycott it commercially, right. but, you know, let's not penalize the athletes. Well, it's a great read, and <laughs> what a turn from 2008 to, until today. Andy, thank you. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. Check out his latest column. You can find it uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, big deal today, and this is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg as well. It's about Microsoft buying speech technology company Nuance Communications. You've heard Charlie and others talk about it on Bloomberg Radio. It's an all-cash deal valued at $19.6 billion. It's a big bet, massive bet, in fact, according to our Dina Bass on healthcare artificial intelligence. So here with what you need to know is Dina Bass. She's Seattle Bureau Chief, and she joins us on the phone in Seattle. Um, Dina, good to have you here with us. So tell us about this deal. Make sense for Microsoft to do this? Because they've been working with this company for a few years now. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, over the course of this year, we've had some, some Microsoft getting involved in some possible deals like TikTok, where people were a little bit scratching their heads as to how it fits. Nuance is sort of the opposite of that. I think, you know, most analysts and investors looked at that, um, you know, when we broke the news yesterday here at Bloomberg that this deal was, was going to happen and, and said, yeah, no, that makes sense. And Microsoft has been working with Nuance for two years. Microsoft is very focused in the speech AI sector, and Microsoft has also been increasingly over the last few years focused on healthcare um, and what they can do to make healthcare easier with technology, cloud software, and artificial intelligence. 
And they can say, take that, Amazon, right? Because Amazon's, is this kind of a shot at Amazon as well? A little bit because okay. Amazon does have an Alexa, uh, you know, some Alexa deployments in healthcare as well. But you know, Alexa is still, for the way most people use it, is still really a consumer play. It's in your kitchen. Uh, you ask it to play music while you make dinner. This is much more focused at industry and very specifically in the healthcare industry. Nuance is looking at some other industries for, for its uh, software, but it really is very focused on, on healthcare and how to make sort of patient appointments and, and you know, easier for clinicians. You know, usually when you see your doctor now, they spend half of the appointment typing away on a computer, Mm. trying to get all of your information into your medical record. This is an attempt to get rid of that need. Makes me crazy. So talk to us about where Microsoft is going with healthcare, because I do feel like, you know, we had the partnership and then came a part of Amazon and Buffett and um, JP Morgan, right? And that kind of came undone. But I do increasingly see high tech companies, you know, aggressively looking at that healthcare space. It's one of those areas that hasn't quite been disrupted yet. That's right. And people have been trying for a long time. I asked Satya Nadella that question this morning. You know, a lot of tech companies have come in and said, we can fix healthcare. And and it's kind of this trail of people who failed. It is a challenging space. It took a long time even to get the electronic medical records going. Microsoft is very focused on providing cloud tools. Uh, They don't want to replace what's already there. They want to partner And, you know, they've been trying to get these tools into the hands of doctors, into the hands of hospitals. They've been working for several years on AI tools for things like triage chatbots, you know, the things that ask you your symptoms and try to funnel you in the right direction, or, uh, you know, things for for software to help with clinical trials, things like that. And and as I mentioned, this nuance system tries to help um, caregivers with getting the information that patients give them into electronic medical records more easily through, you know, speech recognition and then synthesizing with your records. But you could imagine a situation in the future that Microsoft and Nuance are very interested in where the AI searches through your health record for certain words or certain triggers that might indicate what's going on with a patient and makes some suggestions to the doctor or helps the doctor you know, find a better idea for care or things they should be looking at. And so that that's a ways out. But that's kind of what, you know, some of what they're thinking in the future as well. Do you, you know, from talking to the analyst community, investors who follow Microsoft, do they think uh, Microsoft moving more aggressively into AI and specifically AI healthcare makes sense? Yes, they, they do. And again, it's partially because Microsoft has been moving in that direction on its own for the last right. several years and messaging that it's a really lucrative space. And I think the pandemic and, and everything that's gone on in the last year has only reinforced the idea that this needs to needs to happen more aggressively and more efficiently. I want to go back to, because I think I'm thinking about our audience who are listening and they think of Microsoft and they get about, you know, Microsoft Teams and all of their, you know, the things that we know Microsoft for so much. But you were talking about already what Microsoft's been doing in the medical space. Talk to me a little bit more about it. You talked about triage software and you talked about other things. What have they been doing when it comes to healthcare? Actually, you mentioned Teams as well. Teams is an important healthcare product for them too. They have a you know a version of Teams that's meant for for healthcare teams. So, for example, mm. when you're in the hospital, there's a care team, and often when you walk into a hospital room, you see that the care team exchanges information via whiteboard. Right, it's very low tech, um, and you have to rely on different members of your care team to talk to each other, or keep, you know, whoever's with the patient keeps repeating what's going on with the patient. They're trying to get care teams to communicate more through Microsoft Teams, uh, so that's one thing they've been doing. Uh, they released a healthcare cloud product in May, which sort of takes versions of various cloud um, software programs that Microsoft has and tailors them for healthcare. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit before about software for clinical trials. Um, 
you know, they really do want to be a software provider to all of the major healthcare companies. But, you know, Satya Nadella emphasized to me that, that they do not want to compete with those healthcare companies. I know there was some mm. uh, noise this morning about whether this deal meant that Microsoft wanted to compete with Epic and Cerner, who are the two big electronic medical records companies. He, he you know, said to me very firmly, you know, absolutely not. We want to partner with them. Right. So if we can assist them, I'm okay with that, right? <laughs> Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, to, just to make it more efficient. You mentioned it's been difficult. And again, yeah. we've seen that in the pandemic, and it's been difficult for Microsoft, too. You know, their their record is, is not spotless here. They help yeah. several states with vaccine uh, rollout platforms and appointment platforms. And some of those went well, as in Oklahoma. Some of those, as in New Jersey, went very poorly indeed. Yeah. Hey, listen, great stuff. This is the what I was hoping to, hoping to bring to our audience. So thank you so much for joining us. Dina Bass, she is Seattle Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News. As she mentioned, Bloomberg breaking that story on Microsoft, uh, making that big bet on healthcare AI by buying Nuance. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Just about nine minutes left in today's trading day. Let's get to the drive to the close. Back with us, Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management, Margie Patel, with about $603 billion in assets under management over at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Margie, back with us on the phone from Boston. Margie, how are you? Very good, Carol. Well, nice to have you here with us. Um, this is a big week, I feel like, and to some extent, I feel like equity investors are taking a little bit of a breather because we've got big banks coming out with their earnings, and they're going to talk about uh, the outlook, the visibility, what the market environment is like. How do you see it this week? Well, it's interesting because I can't ever think of another quarter where we're absolutely convinced that this will be an extraordinarily strong quarter. We feel that way, too. And uh, it will be interesting to see are there cross-currents from these very, very high expectations. Uh, one, will companies talk about a continuation through the rest of the year, very strong earnings? Will they shade it a little as we get to the third or fourth quarter of the year? And then the other kind of big unknown is what happens to interest rates and inflation. We'll see a pickup. Will that roll over and continue to depress some of the values of the growth stocks? So there's a lot of cross-currents. Well, the good news backdrop. Yeah. Well, talk to me about those earnings expectations. Um, our Dave Wilson was just breaking down the number. We're expecting 24% higher in the first quarter when it comes to EPS and the S&P 500 year over year, up 51% in the second quarter. If those companies, and those are big bounce back, but obviously from a year ago when the whole world just fell apart. But if there is some disappointment or misses, how strongly do you think investors on the equity side of things will react to that? Oh, I think this is going to turn out to be an extremely volatile quarter in spite of those dynamic 
increases in earnings for this quarter and next quarter. So I think that uh, were people expecting even more of a blowout number, and uh, will people be disappointed? Some sectors will be a little depressed. For example, with the chip shortage, some of the auto-related companies may well have disappointing earnings because they simply haven't been able to produce enough because they haven't had enough chips. Will the market look past those? So I think we'll see some uh, some cross-currents. Uh, are results going to be blowout results going to be good enough for the market? Yeah, investors trying to make sense of it. Just want to mention a headline crossing. Uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, of course, former head of the Fed, uh, saying that they plan to spare China from the currency manipulator label. And we often have seen the back and forth on that uh, over the past few decades. Um, having said that, maybe, you know, let me bring that into our discussion, Margie, that there are lots of geopolitical uh, concerns going on right now. Any of them that you think get in the way of uh, investor psyche that makes them a little bit nervous? Uh, no, because I think the two biggest players, the U.S. and China, have a pretty strong growth outlook for the next few quarters. And uh, the laggards, I think, are continental Europe and some of the emerging markets. Uh, but basically, when you have over half of the GDP looking very strong, that says that uh, I think that'll really drive earnings and drive investor expectations. What about inflation concerns? Uh, we heard Jay Powell on 60 Minutes over the weekend. A lot of Fed officials have been out there. Kathleen Hayes talking with uh, Mr. Bullard, Jim Bullard, uh, Mary Daly, uh, just hearing from them and weighing in on the economic outlook and what they see with inflation. Does inflation become problematic on the equity side of things anytime soon, Margie? I think we have to see how that unfolds. I think clearly we're going to see inflation in certain sectors, uh, some of the commodity sectors, some of the goods that have been in short supply. I think we'll see that some some of the uh, chip in fact, uh, computer chips have gone up a lot in price. So I think we'll see here and there a lot of spotty things. What's much more important to me is what happens to labor costs overall, because that's really the biggest driver of inflation. But I think we should expect to see from materials and uh, shortages, we should see some higher prices. And I don't know if that will spook the market. It's only if we start to see sustained labor increases, I think, that the market will get quite concerned. Can we can we draw upon history? If I think about pre-pandemic, uh, the labor market was getting very tight. We know that we did start to see some strains and some push-up in terms of wages, especially along the lower-rung uh, jobs, if you will, and, and that showed how tight the labor market was. Is it a long time before we get to that point? Well, I think we should expect to see some of those, uh, the, the bottom fifth or two-fifth uh, in the employment market show the biggest percentage rebounds. Um, but I think what's more important is what happens to that top uh, top two-fifths of, of labor. We're not expecting to see much increase there, but optically we may see, uh, for, for the average wage for the uh, entry-level worker, big increases there just because uh, they've gone from such a low level and uh, we'll need a big bounce back in order to draw those people back into the uh, the labor force. Hey, Margie, where don't you want to be in the market right now? Uh, well, I think the best place to be is in the strongest economy. So, of course, I would still think the U.S. as opposed to, say, emerging markets. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about the ability of those countries to rebound and also their ability to get over uh, the COVID crisis. We, we're pretty much past that. England's pretty much past that. China looks like it's handling that. But in some of the emerging markets, they look much earlier on the, the COVID curve than we are. So I think we may see disappointing growth from from those countries. But you do like the economically sensitive sectors, correct? 
yes, because we're seeing a not only a uh, short-term cyclical rebound, but also a continuation of the secular growth, especially in the U.S., for a lot of materials demands. A lot of those companies have restructured. A lot of industrial companies have restructured. So we think that as the economy progresses, we'll see good demand for those, those, um, those companies. Just real quickly, just got about 20 seconds here. What keeps you up at night when you look at the financial markets? Uh, I would say, uh, will we see inflation actually pick up for the first time in several decades? Uh, Right now, it doesn't look like it, but it's something to be carefully watched. All right, going to leave it there. Margie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Margie Patel, she's Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management, $603 billion in assets under management, on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.